Hello, friends, and welcome to Into the Word, a radio and online program committed to reading, loving, and living the whole counsel of God. Lord willing, our intention is to go verse by verse and chapter by chapter through the entire Bible. Here to continue that journey is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. If you have your Bible with you, I'd love for you to open it now to Psalm 104. I mentioned in the last episode that Psalms 104 to 106 are a poetic recapitulation of the Pentateuch from Genesis to Deuteronomy. The first major theme in that story, obviously, is the theme of creation, and that is the theme that dominates this psalm. Psalm 104 is the inspiration for one of the best-loved hymns of the last two centuries, the hymn, O Worship the King, by Robert H. Grant. Almost every line of that hymn is lifted from this psalm. Do yourself a favor and read or sing, O Worship the King, after reading Psalm 104, and it will come alive in fresh new ways for you. Psalm 104 is generally categorized as a descriptive psalm of praise. It focuses on God as the giver and sustainer of all life. Now, there are certain psalms that are not frequently imitated or echoed in our modern hymnody. The lament psalms, for example, are generally neglected. I'd love to see more modern songs and hymns uh, mimicking or imitating the lament psalms, but uh, that's not to be at this point. But this sort of psalm right here, this psalm in particular, Psalm 104, does feel very familiar to us as contemporary worshipers. And you can certainly see that as you read through the commentaries. The Word Biblical Commentary, for example, gives this psalm the title, How Great Thou Art. (laughs) The Expositor's Bible Commentary gives it the title, Great is Your Faithfulness to All Creation. These titles are intending to alert us to the massive influence that this psalm has had on the worship of the church in the English-speaking world over the last 200 years. Now, structurally, it reads kind of like a multiverse hymn, and it is typically thought to follow the order of creation in a general sense, as found in the first chapter of Genesis. In terms of authorship, we don't know who wrote it because we aren't told. There is no superscription for Psalm 104 in the Hebrew text, although in the LXX, the Septuagint, it is ascribed to David. That could be, but most commentaries treat the question of authorship as beyond our ability to state with any certainty and as theologically immaterial anyway in terms of its essential message and utility within the church. Whoever wrote it, the covenant community has been extraordinarily well served by it, both in the original liturgical context and still today. Hear now the word of the Lord beginning at verse 1. Bless the Lord, O my soul. O Lord my God, you are very great. You are clothed with splendor and majesty, covering yourself with light as with a garment, stretching out the heavens like a tent. He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. He makes the clouds his chariot. He rides on the wings of the wind. He makes his messengers winds, his ministers a flaming fire. It is often noted that Psalm 104 begins with the same line that ended Psalm 103, and that is almost certainly intentional. It is a way of stitching these works together. As mentioned above, Psalms 103 through 106 are generally understood as being intended to be read as a unit. The theme for this psalm is creation, 
or maybe better, the God of creation. The goal of this psalm is not to get us worshiping nature, but to get us worshiping the God who created nature and who rules over nature and who speaks through nature. In the Bible, God is always both over and through nature and is never described as being strictly identified with nature or as being in nature. Tim Keller says here, unlike in Eastern mysticism, we see here a God who is personal and distinct from his creation, yet who is not in any way remote from it, closed quote. God clothes himself with nature. So as clothes reveal the man, so nature, in a sense, reveals, speaks about God, as it were. But of course, a man is not his clothes, and nature is not God. This is not pantheism or panentheism. This is biblical theism. This is God as creator and sustainer of all things. Now, let's just pause for a moment and notice the style of language being used in this psalm. Psalm 104 is sometimes described as a poet's version of Genesis. That's a line from the Treasury of David, for example. So, to state the obvious, we expect slightly different language than we might find in a historical or, or legal treatment. But that doesn't make it any less true. Poetry is true in a slightly different way. Something can be true in a literal sense and also be expressed in a poetic, symbolic, or figurative sense. These are not the mutually exclusive categories that modern-day evangelicals sometimes present them as being. Obviously, it is not literally true that God drives a chariot made out of clouds, okay? God is a spirit and does not have a body like men. So, having no arms, he has no hands. Having no hands, he does not grasp at reins. And having no physical body, he does not require horse-drawn conveyance of any type. And yet, this verse is true in a certain sense. So, in what sense? That's what we're asking here. This verse is true in the sense that God exercises providential oversight over each and every aspect of creation. In the Bible, chariots are often symbols of imperial oversight. So in the prophetic visions that we find in Zechariah, for example, angels on chariots are sent out to check in on the nations of the world. That is a, a pictorial, symbolic way of saying that God is running things. He decides when to overthrow a kingdom. He decides when to elevate a particular ruler. He's the one who's ultimately in charge. He's, he's sending out providential agents, as it were, to get information and to implement decisions. So that is the true thing that is being said here. As Bible readers, we have to understand that there's a big difference between how the Bible narrates truth and whether the Bible narrates truth. To put that another way, we have to ask two questions of a text like this. We have to ask, is this true? And we have to ask, in what sense is this true? When we only ask the first question and assume the answer to the second question, we get ourselves into all manner of ridiculous predicaments. So, for example, both Luther and Calvin ridiculed the theories of Copernicus, that, that the earth revolved around the sun. Why did they do that? Because... The Bible talks about the stability of the earth in passages like the one we're reading right here in Psalm 104. So, is it true that the Bible talks about the fixedness of the earth? Yes, it is. But 
in what sense is it talking about that? In a physical sense? In a spatial sense? Or in an existential sense? A figurative sense? What is the type of truth being communicated in passages like this? And what sort of language is being used? The vast majority of Christians today believe, alongside Copernicus, that the earth revolves around the sun. But we still believe that the earth is fixed and stable. What we understand that to mean today is that the physical laws in the created realm are consistent and reliable, and that we are not hurtling through the universe towards some kind of cosmic accident. God is steering the ship. God is watching over, and therefore we are secure. So we have shifted in our understanding of the sense in which passages like this are true. And I think that's helpful for us to remember. The Bible is far more comfortable with poetry and symbolism and figurative language than we are as modern-day Western readers. But that's our problem, and we mustn't impose our reading bias on the text. All right, let's apply what we've just talked about. In verse 3, it says, He lays the beams of his chambers on the waters. So, God built the house of the world, as it were, upon the firmament. Well, in what sense should we understand that? Willem van Gemmeren says here, The chambers built above the first story of a house for the purpose of privacy and seclusion represent God's involvement with and separation from his world. Closed quote. So this is a picture. It's, it's a picture presented in language and forms that would have resonated with those who originally heard it. It's a picture that represents God's intimacy with, but also separation from the world. That's how we have to learn to read and interpret this sort of imagery. Now, verse 4 is very interesting. Verse 4, you, you may know, is quoted in Hebrews chapter 1, where it has the word messengers as angels. So Hebrews 1, 7 and 9 says, of the angels, he says, he makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the sun, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions, close quote. So there, in Hebrews chapter 1, the main point is that Jesus is greater and more majestic than the angels. The point in Psalm 104 would seem to be that everything in creation serves the end for which God created it. Now, both texts are true, but in slightly different ways and with slightly different emphases. Verse 5, he set the earth on its foundations so that it should never be moved. Again, we talked about this just a minute ago when we were orienting ourselves uh, to the sort of language that is used in the psalm. What sort of truth is being presented here? A truth about physics, a spatial truth, a hyper-literal truth, or a conceptual truth presented in pictorial language? Whereas Calvin and Luther would have thought this a spatial truth, the vast majority of commentators today understand this as meaning that the world we live in is stable. The physical laws are stable. And thanks be to God, the Lord watches over it. 
So we're not in danger of, of being zapped out of existence by some kind of random occurrence in the cosmos. We're not going to bump into a black hole or anything like that. Hallelujah. Verse 6, you covered it with the deep as with a garment. The waters stood above the mountains. Now, since we were critical of Calvin's view of Copernicus a few minutes ago, let's also be fair and notice that Calvin can and often does appreciate the poetic imagery used in the psalm. He says here, the sea, although a mighty deep which strikes terror by its vastness, is yet as a beautiful garment to the earth. Closed quote. Exactly right. Amen and amen. Verse 7. At your rebuke they fled. At the sound of your thunder they took to flight. The mountains rose the valleys sank down to the place that you appointed for them. You set a boundary that they may not pass so that they might not again cover the earth. So again, the emphasis here is on God's good and stable creation. He sets boundaries. He puts things in place. He makes order out of chaos. And all of that results in a good and beautiful world for us to live in and enjoy as his creatures. Tim Keller says here, a personal creator has filled the world with the principles of physics, mathematics, chemistry, biology, and the like. Because of this, we have aerodynamics making flight possible, electricity, medicine, all harnessing a host of givens and limitations embedded in creation that have made civilization possible. Thank God for them all, closed quote. Yes, indeed. Thank God for them all. Verse 10. You make springs gush forth in the valleys. They flow between the hills. They give drink to every beast of the field. The wild donkeys quench their thirst. Beside them, the birds of the heavens dwell. They sing among the branches. From your lofty abode, you water the mountains. The earth is satisfied with the fruit of your work. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. So here in this section, the psalmist is celebrating how everything in God's creation serves to provide for his various creatures. There are good things here for the plants and the birds and the goats and the wild donkeys, and there are good things here for men and women, too. The earth doesn't just provide us with the bare necessities. It overflows with riches, delicacies, and luxuries. And it is no sin for us to enjoy them. August Tholuck says here, The truly pious need not restrict themselves to the barest necessities of life. But they who have the means may enjoy the gifts of God. Closed quote. I think that's a very important point for us to consider. Sometimes Christians act as if it is more righteous and pious to be grouchy and withholding. Now, certainly, we need to be concerned with inequalities and injustices that keep all people from enjoying what God has provided for us to enjoy. But you being grouchy doesn't necessarily solve that problem. It may just make you less thankful and joyful than you ought to be. <laughs> now, with respect to the blessing of wine mentioned here, of course, we can't pass by without acknowledging that in our sin, we have often found ways to turn blessings into curses. 
C.H. Spurgeon, for example, says here, Oh, that man were wise enough to know how to use this gladdening product of the vine. But alas, he full often turns it to ill account and debases himself therewith. Of this he must himself bear the blame. He deserves to be miserable who turns even blessings into curses, close quote. I've said it before, I'll say it again. It is hard for God to bless a sinful people because we are sinners, because our appetites are inordinate and our wisdom and judgment debased. We do need to be very careful in terms of how we enjoy God's blessings and in terms of how we promote and commend them to others. So, careful, wise, prudent, glad, humble, and joyful reception of these gifts would seem to be the appropriate course of action. Verse 16. The trees of the Lord are watered abundantly, the cedars of Lebanon that he planted. In them the birds build their nests, the stork has her home in the fir trees. The high mountains are for the wild goats, and rocks are a refuge for the rock badgers. He made the moon to mark the seasons, the sun knows its time for setting. You make darkness, and it is night, when all the beasts of the forest creep about. The young lions roar for their prey, seeking their food from God. When the sun rises, they steal away and lie down in their dens. Man goes out to his work and to his labor until the evening. So again, the general theme here is the wisdom and beauty of God's creation. He has made a good world. It provides shelter for the birds, for the conies or rock badgers and the goats. There are seasons and schedules that are reliable and useful. Even the alternation of night and day is helpful. The nighttime is a blessing to creatures that use it to find their prey. And the daytime is helpful for those of us who use our eyes and need good light for crafting or cultivating. I love what W.S. Plumer says about verses 19 to 23. He says, God uses even the beams of the sun as cages with which to lock up the beasts that would otherwise destroy man's life when he goes forth, closed quote. <laughs> Isn't that good? The light forces many creatures back into their lairs, making it safer for us when we venture forth to work the fields or to travel the roads. Thanks be to God. Verse 24. O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Until very recently, Christians viewed the study of the natural world as an act of worship. Matthew Henry, for example, says the works of art, the more closely they are looked upon with the help of microscopes, the more rough they appear. The works of nature through these glasses appear more fine and exact. They are all made in wisdom, for they are all made to answer the end they were designed to serve. The good of the universe in order to the glory of of the universal monarch, close quote. Now, unfortunately, that viewpoint has fallen somewhat out of favor in the last 100 years. Partly that is due to the decidedly atheistic approach of many Western scientists, and partly it is due to our unhelpful overreaction to that. But to be clear, brothers and sisters, science is not the enemy of faith. Science, properly understood, is the handmaiden of faith. Now, of course, we need to be discerning 
And of course, we need to remember that people in their wickedness suppress the truth. But we need also to remember that the heavens declare the glory of God and the whole earth is filled with his goodness. Or as Psalm 104 has it, O Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom have you made them all. It is a good and noble thing to study the works of creation so as to better understand and worship the Creator. And I gladly and wholeheartedly bid more Christians to pursue that study in earnest. Verse 25, Here is the sea, great and wide, which teems with creatures innumerable, living things both small and great. There go the ships and Leviathan, which you formed to play in it. So here the psalmist considers the sea, which makes transport possible, and which simultaneously provides a wonderful habitat for the great beasts of the deep. The word Leviathan just means great sea creature. It could refer to whales or octopi or sharks. They need big, deep, watery spaces. How kind and wise of God to provide them. Verse 27, these all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give it to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created, and you renew the face of the ground. God is in charge of all life. He causes it to be, and the Bible says he causes it not to be. Deuteronomy 32, 39, God says about himself there, See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Everything in all creation must answer to the one who created it. He is life. He is death. He is the beginning and he is the end. Thanks be to God. Verse 31. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works, who looks on the earth and it trembles, who touches the mountains and they smoke. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. May my meditation be pleasing to him, for I rejoice in the Lord. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Praise the Lord. What a wonderful closing prayer. Leslie Allen says here, his final prayer is that man-made flaws in Yahweh's beautiful handiwork may be removed. Those who by flouting his moral order deliberately spoil the harmony of creation forfeit their God-given privilege of sharing in it. Closed quote. Everything in the world is beautiful. The only blot is sinful man. But the psalmist knows that that one day too will be taken care of. As Jesus will later say at the end of the parable of the weeds, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. Are you hearing that?
When all is said and done, the blot and stain of sin shall forever be removed and undone. Creation will be renewed by fire, and all those who have been washed in the blood of the Lamb will shine like the stars in the kingdom of their Father forever. Thanks be to God. And thank you for listening to another episode of Into the Word. If you've appreciated the Into the Word ministry, I'd like to personally invite you to pay it forward by supporting a mission project that is very close to my heart. The Letha Daycare Outreach Project is a church-based educational program designed to teach literacy, support low-income families, and share the gospel of Jesus Christ with boys and girls in rural South Africa. I've seen this project with my own eyes. I have shaken the hands of parents whose families have been helped. I have heard the songs and Bible verses out of the mouths of some of these dear children as they have been taught and helped to put their trust in the Lord. And nothing would be more gratifying to me than for you to show your appreciation for Into the Word by investing in these little ones. You can do that in one of two ways. You can give through the Into the Word app or by visiting the Into the Word website at intotheword.ca. Just click on the Give tab and you'll find giving options for both Canadian and American listeners. This is a registered project with ABWE Canada and ABWE USA. So tax receipts are available to all eligible donors. Just identify where you're listening from and click on the Fund button and select Letha Daycare Outreach. Thank you for considering this method of showing your support for the End of the Word program. And may God alone be glorified. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.